This podcast was produced by Sean Weston Media. Welcome to episode 20 of the Media Will Eat Itself podcast, another season of interviews about how modern professional people work within modern media. What skills do we need to have these days? How has working with media changed over the years and what do we have to look forward to? Today I'm joined by Manchester-based poet Andrew McMillan. He's the author of the first ever poetry collection to win the Guardian First Book Award. He's also a lecturer at the Manchester Writing School and a writer in residence at the charity First Story. Poetry fans, and particularly Andrew's loyal followers, may find themselves disappointed that our conversation is far from poetic. Instead, Andrew and I discuss what it's like to be a poet and writer in the digital age, and how modern life, mental health, and social media influence our creativity. Enjoy the show. Andrew, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast. No worries, thanks for having me. So, um, so I research many of my guests with the benefit of a LinkedIn CV to hand, but yours is quite sparse. <laughs> You're a very different guest than I usually interview. But I've fallen down quite a few rabbit holes while reading about you, taking in your poetry as well as the poets around you, and I got lost for hours at a time. So your personal history is there for all to see, but can you tell our listeners more about your professional self, please, in, in terms of when you were first published, as well as your lecturing background? Yeah, so um, my first pamphlet, so a kind of pamphlet of poetry, I guess is like an EP before the full album. It's kind of where you test things out and stuff <laughs> like that. Um, the first one of those that I did came out in 20, in fact, in 2009. So when I was still an undergraduate, when I was second year undergraduate, and so... I've been doing it now for, I guess, sort of 10, 12 years professionally, kind of being published. Um, and I started off really in community art. That was my background, kind of doing freelance work, working with young offenders, working in schools, in kind of care homes and things like that, doing poetry, doing freelance writing. Um, and gradually that just kind of shifted into being brought into a couple of university research projects and then doing a bit of guest lecturing and then kind of slowly but surely um, kind of landed where I am now, which is um, at the Manchester Writing School at Manchester Met. And on a very base level, I think career-wise, it suits me much more to know what my income is. I think some people are built to be freelance and I'm not. Um, mm. It made me very anxious to not know what I was earning month to month, that some years you were doing kind of drastically more than others. And somehow, and I love teaching as well, but somehow having that regular income each month means that I feel much more in control and it, it helps my writing much more as well, I think. Are you saying that the life of a poet isn't full of gold, uh, pots of gold? You'd be surprised to learn that it's not. <laughs> um, I mean, poetry is that strange thing where there is genuinely no money in it, which is kind of interesting mm. because... It means that people only do it if they love it, which means that it attracts a certain kind of passionate person, I think. I mean, I think there are definite ways to make a living out of it. Being freelance is one, doing media stuff is one. But most poets that you could name, even Simon Armitage, Carol Ann Duffy and people like that, they teach at least partially in order to kind of supplement their income. And it's to do, again, on a very kind of economic level, business level, with the kind of market share that poetry has in, in book sales, which is increasing, but is still a kind of very small percentage. And so poetry is that strange thing where it occupies a very kind of central part, it seems to me, in people's lives. So if you go to a wedding or a funeral, people will generally say, oh, do you know a poem that I could read out? People have the sense that poetry is somehow important on occasion or after the Manchester mm -hmm. bombing here that you had that kind of poem that went viral and things like that. So it occupies this certain kind of position in people's lives 
and yet day to day is very marginal. And so that just means that the kind of financial aspect of it is never going to be the reason to do it, I guess. Yeah, champagne is only for weddings, poetry is only for weddings, etc., yeah. etc. But yeah, unusual, unusual. But but it, it's a cliche as well, isn't it? That the, there's no money in poetry. That that people do do it for the love of it. And generally, um, do you think that has changed at all? You did say there that more books are being sold, or there's more interest in poetry these days. There is. There's, a, there's been a really interesting trend over the last sort of maybe five, six years of poetry sales increasing by quite a lot. I don't have the percentage figure on me, but by a massive percentage compared to what it was. And that's driven by a youth market, which is really interesting. So that's driven by um, kind of people younger than me, so kind of people in their 20s and their late teens, and driven from Instagram poets as well. So you have someone like Rupi Kaur who sells kind of millions of copies based through a kind of Instagram model of marketing herself. You get a lot of performance poets who are then crossing over into page poetry or into theatre work as well, and they reach new audiences that way. What has happened in poetry, kind of almost in in correspondence, I think, with social media and with just a more people's awareness more of how they market themselves is that people see themselves I guess for better or for worse much more as brands particularly younger poets know much more how to market themselves much more how to kind of build an audience I guess and what's been interesting and not just in poetry but across all art forms is that the digital space means that those kind of old boundaries and gatekeepers to a certain extent break down that people can build audiences for themselves in a way that might not have been possible sort of 15 20 years ago and I don't know again if that means that there's more I don't know if that leads to kind of financial reward but it means that people can get more eyeballs on their poetry in a way that they might not have been able to before. I think particularly for poets who are with kind of small presses, poets who are maybe self-publishing their own work, I think that's particularly important. I'm lucky that I'm with a I'm with Jonathan Cape, who are part of Vintage, who are part of Random House, who are part of Penguin Random House. So there's a massive kind of industrial conglomerate machine behind them. Um, but I think for a lot of small press poets, there's a they've been able to utilise um, that online space to to really good effect. Well, you're not exactly old yourself. You're probably in the millennial bracket, right? I, I would be, yes. Yeah. So I was born in 88, um, so I'm 31 now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that kind of millennial bracket. It's a, you have a, actually a 13,500 Twitter followers. Yeah. So in terms of what you were just saying there about uh, creating your own brand or at least having a degree of um, follower uh, where you don't actually have to have uh, the big conglomerate um, team advertising your stuff and marketing your your name. You could actually just self-publish and have your Twitter followers uh, do that for you. So are you in two groups here where you could actually take advantage? I mean, what's really interesting about that Twitter following is that it's kind of great to have, and I feel very connected to a kind of wider world in that sense, but I I still haven't quite figured out and I'm sure there would be ways on how that translates into things like book sales. So certainly I've never sold 13,000 copies of any of my poetry books. Mm. And I sometimes kind of fantasise that if I put online, what if every one of my followers just gave me a pound and then I could sort of get a new <laughs> kitchen or something like that. But what I haven't noticed, or kind of if I post about gigs and things like that, or so I've got this reading coming up in London or something like that, I tend to get kind of one or two people that I then meet at that kind of reading or that event that say, oh, I saw you put it on Twitter, so I thought I'd come along. So what I have noticed is that the that kind of crossover, it seems to me, 
isn't massive between the kind of size of the following and then what that equates to on the end. I think what it does do is gives me a platform, I guess, to speak out about stuff. I think that Twitter once explained it to me really interestingly, which is that Instagram is perhaps look at me, but Twitter is perhaps look at this. And I think Twitter's just really good for kind of sharing other things. The kind of posts that often on Twitter have done the best or have gone most viral, as it were, have been just me kind of sharing sometimes other poems by other poets um, or just by kind of saying something about poetry that then kind of people latch on to. So in that sense, I guess it keeps things ticking over, it keeps a conversation going, but I've not yet figured out if there is at all a crossover and what it is between that kind of size of following and what that equates to an audience. Yeah, exactly. Being an active follower or an apathetic follower. Yeah. 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 But it's interesting that you said there that you're using Twitter to sort of um, perhaps uh, enthuse a community around poetry rather than market yourself through it. So do you you think, how do you market yourself actually? Or do, do you let your publisher take care of most of that side of things? I mean, the publisher do that mostly, I think. I mean, I would, if there is a kind of new piece of work or journalism in a newspaper or a review that I've written in The Guardian or something like that, I would kind of post that and try and kind of signpost people towards it. I think that that works much better if that's not something that you're doing all the time. I think that what I have learned about social media, just from my own, I guess, kind of preferences, is that I get turned off very quickly by people who I think are just kind of relentlessly posting about themselves or the things they're doing or kind of what they're trying to flog. And I guess it feels more authentic, because it is genuinely authentic if it comes from a space of just a conversation that's continuously happening around literature, around art, around poetry. Then every so often you pop up and say, oh, and I've just done this, so I'm going to be in London if you want to talk about this, or come along and chat about this at this event. That It then feels part of a wider it then feels part of a wider conversation, I guess. As mm, an authenticity. To, I think so, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I was going to yeah, the authenticity has been, um, I, I would say, the 20-somethings. That's what they want. They want people to be more authentic, to show more of their personal self and not be sold to. And they know when they're being sold to. And, I think, and that's really interesting because, because I came out of a generation that was just built around kind of hyper-irony, it seemed to me. That in literature and in in art particularly, you had this real, and especially when I was in my kind of teen years, this real sense of kind of just limitless irony where it would be sort of, I'm dressed like this, but I'm doing it ironically. I'm listening to this band, but I'm doing it ironically. I'm doing this, but I'm going to this place, but I'm doing it ironically, so it's okay. And nothing kind of really mattered. And I think just because of the way that trends swing between extremes, that rise of kind of radical sincerity um, has really been a reaction against that, that actually irony is fine to a point, but ultimately people want to know what you care about. People want to know, people want you to put yourself on the line, I think, particularly in any art form. And so that kind of rise of sincerity, I think, has been really interesting. And we can see when you're branding yourself and when you're not. Yeah. And we will stop fo- We will stop following you when we know that you're branding yourself all the time. Which is difficult, isn't it? Because then everyone is all the time anyway. It's, everything's kind of performative to a certain extent. And so people become slightly trapped, I guess. So people don't get the chance to change, I think, in that situation as well. Like, I'm so glad I didn't have Twitter when I was kind of 15 or 16 or that I didn't have any kind of social media because the, it, it kind of haunts you and I think it follows people through their lives in a way that we never conceived that it would. Mm. And I think that that's quite dangerous, that people don't get that authentic chance to, to change because their kind of ghost selves or their past selves are kind of always there as well. Mm. 
So what role do you think social media media plays in, in the poetry community at large? I mean, it's been interesting. I think that it's, it means that conversations can happen um, in a really interesting way that kind of oftentimes debates happen in poetry. I mean, poetry is the same as any kind of niche art form in that people care a lot about things that don't really matter. And so you can kind of see arguments <laughs> explode about kind of things that really are of no consequence to anyone. But it feels important in that kind of small world. But I think on a po- in a positive way, it's allowed kind of people to share work that otherwise we might not have had access to. Like it isn't that long ago that if we wanted to discover an American poet or a poet from somewhere else in the world, we would either have had to wait for an English publisher to publish them or to order the book and wait a few weeks or maybe a couple of months for it to arrive. Whereas now we can share work immediately online. And so what I think has happened is that the art form is becoming gradually more diverse just because its list of influences is becoming more diverse because we have greater access to things around the world. And I guess what has also interested me is just the different that different social media platforms adapt to art in different ways. So Instagram really forced a change in the form of poetry because it's a small square, because you can't have much text on it. That led to the rise of Insta poets like Rupi Kaur because you have to have a certain style of poetry. Whereas Twitter, even after it expanded its um, kind of character count, because of the visual the visuals of the text on Twitter, it's not great for sharing original poetry. But what Twitter's great mm. for is taking a photograph of a page of a book and then tweeting that. And so what's been really interesting is these different, and YouTube obviously kind of great for um, kind of sharing videos of performance. I think TikTok is a new one, and so I'm not really sure what's going to happen with that, but I'm sure people will find a way to make that work for poetry. But it's interesting that, you know, we think about social media as this kind of block and its influence on art, but each platform has done something very different to to the art form, as it were, that the medium is kind of shifting how, how the thing is made. Which is great, actually, because that's what social media should be. I mean, I work with a lot of businesses and corporate people who say, well, let's put this on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, etc. And I say to them, well, you can't just put that one piece on all of them because yeah. that's uh, that's insincere. You know, we, every social media channel has a slightly different readership, if you will, a different kind of follower, a different audience. And it's I, I'm at pain sometimes to say, no, you need to find out why people go to see you on Instagram, Why? what kind of person goes to see you on Twitter, because they're not necessarily the same person. That's the thing, and I think, like you said that... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, that, that like passive and active thing is really interesting as well, I think. For instance, you know, if I occasionally take a photograph of a poem I've been enjoying and kind of tweet that, that will get a lot of just kind of retweets or likes, but very few comments. Mm. And so you kind of think that people are just scrolling past it going, yeah, that's kind of fine, I'll tweet that or I'll like that. But when you ask those kind of active questions, and so once when I was putting together a syllabus for a postgraduate programme, I just said, look, I've got 10 poets to choose from. This is who's on the list. I'm thinking about changing it next year. Who should I put on? Who's not on already? And that kind of blew up into this kind of few days long conversation of people suggesting poets and then counter suggestions and things like that. Because it felt like Mm. I was asking a genuine question that wasn't rhetorical, that people could actually kind of have an influence on in their reply. And so those were just kind of two, I guess, different ways in which I found myself interacting through that followership, I guess. Yeah. And what you, what you said a few minutes ago about, um, I, li- I liked what you, what you said, it stuck in my ear. And it was that poetry will find, or the poetry community will find a way of making TikTok work. 
Yeah, I like that. I mean, it's it's a it's a say a terrible phrase right now. It's almost a virus, isn't it? It's almost a viral thing where we attach to things and find a way of working within that host. And yeah. TikTok is very new. It's also very young. It has such um, um, a wide reach, but it's very very young people, and they've made it work for them. It's incredibly young. Yeah, and I don't. I really don't understand it. This is how I feel old now because this is the one that I just don't understand. Um, but my nephew and you're 20 understand. years younger than me. <laughs> exactly. There's no hope for any of us. I mean, what's interesting, kind of looking at some TikTok, I don't have it, but like when sometimes they get reposted to Twitter and things, mm. is people almost making kind of short, kind of short films with it, or kind of doing kind of little comedy sketches with it, and that's really interesting. So again, it's another kind of outlet of creativity, whereas Instagram might just be posting a photo of something. So are we saying that this could be a good platform for performance poetry? I think potentially, or certainly for... It seems to me a way of storytelling because of the way that you can kind of intercut different scenes of something or kind of use it almost as like a mini storyboard or like a flip book, it seems to me, like one of those old-fashioned flip books where you'd kind of turn the pages and something would move. That it's a way of all these young people kind of just constructing these mini narratives which often have a kind of comedic payoff, but they've already adapted it to that new thing, that new way of telling mm. stories. So whereas on Twitter you might see someone do a thread about something kind of funny they saw or telling a joke that's kind of six or seven tweets, TikTok allows them to do that in six seconds by kind of these mini little frames. And that, I think, is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's come back to the difference between the young and old. Not, not, not that you are old at all, but you are teaching. So let's come back to your role as a teacher. Yeah. So how different are the young people you meet on a regular basis compared to the young you? Young me. It's interesting. I think that we face a crisis of mental health in that generation that we weren't aware of in my generation. The, and, I, and I have no idea what that's attributed to other than we do live in much more anxious times as we're finding out of the mini. I grew up as a kind of part of a, particularly where I grew up in the kind of Western England, as part of quite a benign generation that came up during New Labour, where you had a kind of sense of endless optimism and that things would, the curve of history would kind of bend towards progress and kind of peace, as it were. I think the generation that came after me realised that that wasn't necessarily the case. They've grown up in much more anxious times. And I had this really interesting conversation with a student who, it was after the election, it was the day after the most recent election, and he'd voted, and I was just kind of talking to him about that, and he said he was really worried that his generation would just stop voting, because every time they'd gone out, a majority of them had voted, for instance, to remain in Europe, or they'd gone out and voted for kind of a Corbyn government, they'd woken up to Trump in, each, in the American election, each time they'd kind of woken up and been disappointed, and he was interested in how long that could go on before people became apathetic. I think that's really interesting. I mean, what they are is much, much more politically engaged than we ever were. My generation was incredibly politically apathetic, and that's generalising, but as a whole they were. Whereas this generation is much more involved in student politics, much more involved in environmental politics, much more involved in social politics, and are just much more socially conscious and aware than we ever were, because they're the generation that... I remember when the recession kind of kicked in, I was going through college and then university. These are the kids that came of age post that. And I think that that has altered the way that they consume. That's altered the way that they look at the world. That's altered the way that they kind of want the world to function, I guess. And so I think that's a big difference. And also they're just much, much more socially liberal 
um, as well. Then it's much easier. I think it's still very difficult, but they have much more kind of liberal understanding of gender, of sexuality, of things like that. Um, and that's partly come through representation in the media, I guess. So on the one hand, they are this kind of incredibly proactive, engaged liberal generation i think but then on the other hand because of everything that's happening in the world it's, there's just a crisis of mental health and so a lot of them sadly are very anxious kind of medically anxious and a lot of them um have kind of very very difficult mental health problems and the two of those things together makes for quite a difficult mix i think there's an argument here for saying that because they are more attuned to being uh, a part of the social media generation that's what they've known is that they believe in the power of it so their anxiety can come from you said earlier about the tiniest of things they can be overblown but at the same time when things don't perhaps go the way they expected even though social media was on fire about it they suddenly find well did social media just let me down i thought everyone's going to vote the way that i voted etc so there's that leaning on social media as some sort of crutch, perhaps a technology crutch where you think there's a community there, but perhaps it's an echo chamber. Well, I think I think that's the thing. And I think I mean, that's the case. People of all generations. But I think particularly for a young generation, if you construct an online world um, around yourself that, you know, has massive benefits, it allows people to kind of reach out across communities, it allows people to meet like-minded people and things like that, that it, that you, you know, I wasn't at all surprised about the outcome of the last election. I didn't think it would be as big as it was, but it's kind of exactly what I expected. But I think that if you just surround yourself by people who were kind of retweeting what you retweeted or kind of believed what you believed, it's hard to remember that amid there's a majority of the country who aren't on Twitter or who aren't thinking that. And one of the great challenges of this decade is going to be how you bridge that gap in a way that in a way that you yeah. can then positively move forward. And I don't have I have no idea how you do that, but that seems to me that's going to have to be what we've got to do. Well, let's move away from the social media side of things at the moment. Come a bit more about the general technology and and back to your teaching again. So, yeah. do you talk to your students about the differences between traditional publishing? And self-publishing, because self-publishing is, is still fairly young, isn't it? Yeah, and a lot of them are, are kind of exploring it for themselves. And a couple of the students actually have already kind of self-published their own kind of collections and things like that. I think what I try and guide them towards is patience. Because certainly in poetry, I think in any, in, in, in if you're writing novels as well, in kind of any book, you can only have that first book once. And for better or for worse, there's a massive weight put on debuts now and over the last few years and the real pressure for a debut to do well. And I think it's harder if you get kind of bored when you're 20 and just think, oh, I'll just publish this collection of my own poetry and then put it out into the world. I think that can be dangerous in the then a publisher note, you can never be that, you can never have a first book again. And so I think they often have a kind of impatience to get stuff out into the world, but I'm still a big bit, like old-fashioned in the sense that I'm still a big, big believer in in the kind of traditional publishing routes because it means that someone's looked at it, it means that it's been edited, it means that it's had to pass through some sort of quality control process, yeah. which I do think is important. If that's the kind of publishing role, that the kind of role in publishing, I guess, that you want. And I guess it's been interesting, you know, for as long as I've been really writing, people have been predicting the death of the book, that e-books would just kind of take over everything that 
print books would kind of become obsolete. And it turns out that's just not true, that people still like that kind of physical object. Yeah, the vinyl as well, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it, to me, it's just a format, of course, because I, I was never I, – I'm – I despair over tribalism. I, yeah. I'm not a fan of tribalism at all. We always have to be in, in one group or another. <laughs> and for a while, if you remember, that it was about um, physical books and uh, e-books. Yes. And it was either you were a fan of one or a fan of another. And I said, well, as long as you read the story, does it matter how you consumed it? And, and it does to some people. Because, uh, you know, they they want to be able to have 40 books on a device or they want to have that lovely paperback with the broken spine and sit on the beach. Yeah. But to me, it's always about the story. It's yeah. always about the poem. It's always about the content. Um, so, I, so I kind of despair over that, though, those arguments. Is that something that uh, you find young people also bring up? Or do formats not matter so much to them? I don't think so. It doesn't seem to me that they do. They seem to, they carry physical books around much more than they carry kind of Kindles around or e-readers around. But mm. then for access purposes, we would generally kind of make sure that all the reading that we wanted them to do was at least accessible online or kind of could be read kind of online and things like that. So, mm. I mean, it seems to me that they, they're just growing up into a world that where both is just kind of almost like oxygen like both are just kind of around and as you say they can there's not a tribalism to it like i think there was in previous generations when ebooks kind of first came around and people almost thought like it was going to kill off the book whereas i think that generation is just growing up into a space where both is just kind of as it should as it is and that brings us on to the sound side of things as well because i love audible i like to have books read to me as well yeah. Is that something that's very common in poetry? You know, weirdly, it's not at all. And you'd think it would be, right? Yeah. You'd think that that was a natural market for poetry. That's what I thought. It barely exists, which is very strange. Why? So, I, I, I honestly, I have no idea because you would think that it would be, A, a very simple thing to do because poets like reading their work, you know, it's kind of... But um, And also just because poetry books are quite short, that they'd be quite easy to record. But it barely exists. I can think of one or two books last year that have kind of started to make that leap. Poetry podcasts have begun to flourish, which I think is an interesting thing. But that notion of the poetry audiobook, which you would think was, as you say, such an obvious thing, seems somehow not really yet to exist. Like, I'm sure it will do. Because poetry readings at literature festivals, poetry festivals in themselves, where people can go and see poets live have kind of really flourished over the past kind of decade. There's been a real growth spurt in that. So you would think that audiobooks would kind of be the next natural thing, but it's, I, I have no idea why that would be. Well, um, I should say that it's been a shame that we've had this conversation over the airwaves when we actually live not that far away from one another and circumstances have, have sort of created the situation for us. So yeah. I'm very sorry that, that that's happened, but I've, I've had such a great conversation. Half an hour has flown by. I wonder if you can tell the listeners what you're working on at the moment and uh, how we best contact you, Andrew. Absolutely. So um, I'm trying to use some of this self-isolating time to um, work on some new poems for the new book. So that'll be book three. So... Um, hoping to get some of those sent off to the editor at some point before I'm let back out onto the street. <laughs> um, but I'm at Andrew Poetry on Twitter. Um, or my website is just andrewmcmillanpoet.co.uk and I can be emailed through there as well. That was Andrew McMillan. And you can find him online at andrewmcmillanpoet.co.uk or on Twitter. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever podcast service you subscribe to. And take a look at my own website at seanweston.co.uk for more information about me. And in the meantime, stay tuned. There's more to come. <laughs> <laughs>